I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings this morning. 1 Kings chapter 19, fairly early in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19. Appreciate the work of so many of our tech guys who keep things going. I couldn't help but chuckle this weekend. Um, Alan Biddle, who many of you know, who does such a great job for us getting slides and other things up on the screen, I had sent him my full outline, and he sent me back something that said, uh, thank you very much, this looks great. By the way, uh, what is the scripture passage? And so uh, it's going to be important. If you're going to go anywhere, you're going to need that. So we're going to come to the scripture passage, start with that, and go from there. So 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to start with verse 1 today. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisa, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahaloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Father, may you... Do what only you can in our hearts and lives this morning. 
Would you call us out from under the broom tree, wherever we find ourselves there? And may the gentle rebuke and the grace of Jesus Christ propel us forward. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to a passage today that is somewhat of an epilogue. I can remember being a kid when we used to sit down at 4 o'clock every afternoon to watch, uh, I believe it was David Jansen on The Old Fugitive. And every time at the end of that show, they'd have an epilogue to tell you what happened after the story concluded. 1 Kings 18 is a story that every kid that's been in Sunday school longer than a year knows by heart. Whenever the prophets of Baal come up to the mountain and all the people gather there to see who will win, Yahweh or Baal, which way is it going to go? And all the prophets of Baal shout for hours until they finally give up. And Elijah comes to the altar after he's soaked it with water. He bows down and he prays and he says, Lord, would you show the people that you're drawing their hearts back again or calling them back to yourself and that you're, you're, you're bringing them back. And all of a sudden, the fire of God falls from heaven and it burns up and annihilates essentially everything on that altar. And the prophets of Baal begin to flee. And it's not too long after that that all the prophets of Baal are gone. And you think, boy, if ever there was an a time in Scripture to write, and they all lived happily ever after. This perhaps would be the moment. And yet we come to 1 Kings 19, and we see a very different turn. I'm calling today valleys and peaks. That was what was on the graphic already. We sometimes use the phrase peaks and valleys, but really today we come to a passage that's primarily a valley. It's come right off of a great experience, but we come today to a passage of Scripture where we see something different than what we're expecting. Do you know anyone who is just always optimistic? They're probably a morning person and they jump right out of bed. It seems like it's sunshine and rainbows every day for them, no matter where they turn. Do you know anyone like that? Most people don't feel that they themselves are that way, but you probably know somebody that you think, I bet so-and-so is that way, or they strike me as that way. Heard a story one time of an army that was captured and thrown down into a very deep pit. And so as these men were thrown down by rank, of course, the lower class soldiers get thrown down there first. And as they get down to the bottom of that pit, they see that there's steep walls on every side. And they also have the largest pile of horse manure that they'd ever seen in their life over on the side. Well, the general gets thrown down before too long, and as he looks over and sees that same offense over in the corner, he runs at it as fast as he can, and while he's leaping into it, he shouts to his men, come on, men, there's got to be a horse in here somewhere. <laughs> have you ever known the eternal optimist, the person who never seems to have a cloudy day? You know, when we read the pages of Scripture, we see again and again that there is no one who never has a cloudy day. That we see not only the highs in those that God uses, but we're often told about the lows. There are perhaps one or two characters in the Old Testament that we are not told a low about, and I'm confident that's only because the Lord didn't feel it necessary to include it, not because they never had it. And so i got a few things to say this morning as we come to an epilogue passage, which really, in some ways, becomes every bit as important as 1 Kings 18. And so the first thing I'd say this morning is that sometimes the valley comes right after the mountaintop. Sometimes the valley comes right after the mountaintop. 
Elijah should have been going off into the sunset after 1 Kings 18, and yet when Jezebel sends word that, you know, may supernatural forces do whatever they want to me if I leave your head on your shoulders this time tomorrow, I'm coming after you. Elijah chooses to run away in fear. Uh, The word that's used in verse 3, then he was afraid, the ESV makes an an interpretive meaning translation here because the quite literal word is, is there, then he saw, but he obviously saw not simply with his eyes, but he saw in fear what, what was coming and he made a choice to leave. Sometimes the valley comes right after the mountaintop. I got to borrow a, a book from Pastor Brandon this week. Uh, many of you know his library is just very uh, immense. And so I always go in there, if I'm going to be speaking on something, sometimes I'll go in there and peruse the stacks, or I'll ask if I can borrow a book. And I I went in there this week, and I said, hey, I've got a few commentaries on the book of 1 Kings. Have you got anything else I'll just kind of, you know, that you really like? And he said, well, I I don't know that I've done too much out of 1 Kings, and so there's probably something over there. And sure enough, I looked, and there was one that I I got that I really enjoyed uh, looking through. And it was just a great testimony of our pastor for his diligence and his faithfulness that as I opened up this book that he sort of almost made it sound as if he might not have had a chance to even look at. As I came to this passage and was studying for this, every page had underlines from Pastor Brandon. And so it was encouraging to get a chance to walk through one commentary that was written by a guy named Tony Morita that was speaking about this passage. One of the things that stuck out to me was that Tony told a story about a prominent pastor. If I was to say his name, you, most of you would know who he is. But he had what he described as bread truck Mondays. You ever had a bread truck Monday? This prominent pastor would have Sundays at times that were so discouraging that by Monday he had this dream of driving the bread truck. Maybe I can leave the ministry behind, and for him, the thing that he came up with is if I could just drive a bread truck, if it could just be me and the bread and the radio, that's what I would like. And so for him, he often had bread truck Mondays. For a lot of you, you might have whatever it is Mondays, if, if I could be anywhere but here. For, for Elijah, perhaps he's not only afraid, but he's asking the question, is it time to drive the bread truck and to give up the ministry? Is it time not only to leave Jezebel behind and to leave Israel behind, but perhaps he's thinking it's time even to leave my role in ministry behind as well. Interestingly enough, the name Jezebel means who is the Baal? And that word Baal is used for a prominent idol in the Old Testament, but it also was a general term that could even mean words like prince or master or lord. So quite literally, Jezebel's name is where is the Lord? And is that not a very appropriate name for her? Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. Yet he doesn't seem to cling to what his name professes his truth to be. And he begins to run. He runs and he goes fast, not literally runs, but he, you know, hightails it and heads to the Rio Grande of Israel. And that's a place called Beersheba. When you read the Old Testament, you'll sometimes see Israel described from some northern territory to often what's listed in the south is Beersheba. You're coming to the border at that point. 
Anything past that, you've left Israel and you've continued to go. So he comes to Beersheba and it's there that he leaves his servant behind and he continues on alone into the wilderness. Interestingly enough, Beersheba is a, is a name of a place that comes from Genesis, I believe it's 21, where Abimelech and Abraham, there's a little bit of a scuffle over who owns a well and who it belongs to. Abimelech is not aware that some people have been holding Abraham out of being there, but it's interesting as Abimelech and Abraham come together to decide on this, this is what Abimelech says to start off that conversation. He says this, Abraham, I know that God is with you in all that you do. The name Beersheba means well oath. This is the promise that was made about the well. That name, you know, continues on to where that was always going to refer backwards to that conversation. Elijah has not been able to lean into Yahweh is my God, and he's not even been able to lean into I know that God is with you in all that you do, and he continues onward into the wilderness. And he comes to a place which seems very unlikely, perhaps, for one of God's chosen servants, particularly one who had just won a great victory. So number one, sometimes the valley comes right after the mountaintop. Number two, be encouraged. Even when God's most, uh, even God's most faithful servants face despair. Be encouraged because even God's most faithful servants face despair. That there's times where the water just seems too deep. Or the road becomes too difficult. Right after the joys of the mountaintop, Elijah is plummeted immediately into despair. Whether logically or illogically, it doesn't matter because he's there. He goes a day's journey into the wilderness and uh, he, he finds himself in despair. We read the words in just a moment. You know, it's interesting that word despair tends to describe a sense of hopelessness, uh, a sense of anguish, anguish, or just somehow finding yourself in a place you don't know how to get out of. There's just a deep emotional uh, uh, darkness that is there. The Journal of the American Heart Association in 1997 studied people who found themselves frequently in despair, and they found that being in despair has the same effects on the arteries of the human body as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. And so despair is a dark and difficult place. And it's somewhere that if you've been there before, you know it's not just a quick journey out. One of the books that I read this week or looked through this week and studying for this said this statement about Elijah in this passage. It says, we are strangely and perhaps perversely fascinated by weaknesses in prominent people. We are strangely and perhaps even perversely fascinated by weaknesses in prominent people. We see this in our own day. It seems that society builds people up just so they can tear them down. And we're drawn in some way to weaknesses when we see it in others. And I think one of the reasons we're drawn to that is because we recognize so many weaknesses in ourselves. So much of the human story and the human experiences recognizes that there will be times where we go through the deep water. You know, this is seen in our art and in our literature. I, I thought of a number of things this week. You know, Pastor Brandon and I are both fond of the Lord of the Rings, the character that's in there, King Theoden, who has this immense regret and immense guilt for all the things that he's not done well. And he says, oh, that I should live to see the last days of my house. One of the more recent movies 
with uh, the, the character Luke Skywalker, who has had to deal with his whole, you know, nature of everything that's come and, and the good and the bad, and he finally reaches a place where he's no longer the victorious guy. He's the guy that's in despair, and it's there in his despair that he says, I haven't been who I should have been, and it's then where he has this conversation with the little green frog-looking guy, Yoda, you know, who, who says to him, you know, it wasn't just the good things and your successes and your victories that you were supposed to pass on, but your weakness and your failure. And it's then that Yoda says, the greatest teacher, the greatest teacher failure is. That nothing teaches us like failure. Nothing teaches us at times like despair. A movie maybe some years ago about Johnny Cash's life sees the character playing Johnny, pa Johnny Cash depicting a scene that was somewhat true in his own life where in, in a half-drunken state he tried to drive a tractor and ended up in the pond that was by his house and it's then that his wife goes and realizes he might drown, pulls him out of the water, drags him to shore and in the scene in the movie he looks up at his wife and says, you should have left me there. Despair. A place where you say, just let me die. It's better that I never live. It's better that this or that. You know, in this passage, we see Elijah find himself under a broom tree. Some of your translations might say a juniper. It's in the juniper family, but this is a picture of a broom tree. Doesn't look terribly inviting, does it? Interestingly enough, 1 Kings chapter 4 describes the blessing and the prosperity of Israel by saying that everybody had a fig tree and a vine in which they could be under. And so that was the, the place you wanted to be was under the fig tree, under the vine. But it never says that about a broom tree, a desert plant that grows in places where you don't want to go, in a hostile environment. It's there that Elijah, from the heights of Mount Carmel, has now found himself under a broom tree. Verse 4, and Elijah asks that he might die saying, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. We see this kind of statement not only made by Elijah, we see it made by Job, we see it made by Moses, we see it made by Jonah, we see it made by King David, we see it here expressed by Elijah. There's really two parts of Elijah's statement. And the first is this, where he says to God, Take away my life. It's enough. Lord, take away my life. He's asking to die. Now, the irony of that is that Elijah was one of only two people that we're aware of who never underwent physical death. He's going to ride directly to heaven in a whirlwind by God's grace but he can't see that far ahead. Take away my life. Here under the broom tree, Lord, let it end. He can't see far enough ahead to know that one day, even leaving heaven and coming to earth for a time, he's going to be with Moses and the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And three disciples. And it's there that God is going to show his power and his fulfillment of every promise in Christ and to begin to set things in motion. And Elijah can't see that far ahead. 
You know, when you and I lay under the broom tree and we despair, often it's because we can't see what God has planned. We don't have the vantage point that God has. Take away my life. And then Elijah says this, I'm no better than my father's. Maybe Elijah means the nation of Israel. Maybe he means something particular in his family. But Elijah has reached a place where he cannot run from his human frailty anymore. So maybe by this point he's saying, you know what? I should be in Israel right now standing up to Jezebel. Or maybe at this point he's just saying, I can't go back because I'm too scared. Whatever it is, he recognizes his own human frailty. That his hope is not in himself. He realizes, I've got nothing to offer, Lord. Take my life because I'm no better than my father's. You know, we have moments where we see with clarity just how much we don't measure up, don't we? We have moments where we just realize, God, if you were hoping for something better for me, God, if you were hoping for this, if you were hoping, you know, whatever it is, we have moments where we see our own human frailty with clarity. And it's in that kind of statement that God doesn't answer his prayer in the way that he wants. But as he lays down under a broom tree, there's an angel that comes. That angel says, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. I was at the North Carolina State Fair on Friday. It was so hot. I think they could have baked that cake right there on the asphalt where we were there in Raleigh. But on hot stones, there is this cake that is baked. There's, there's refreshment that, that is there. Elijah eats, he drinks, he lays down again, he falls asleep. Then the angel of the Lord comes a second time and he says this wonderful thing. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. The journey is too great for you. The third thing I'd say this morning is this. The journey is too much for us, but God's more than enough for the journey. The journey is too much for us. They weren't just talking about the journey to Mount Horeb. I think the angel was talking also about the fact that the journey of his calling, the journey of his life, the journey of his walking with the Lord, that was too much for him to do in his own strength. The same is true for us. The journey's too much for you. On that food, the Bible tells us in this passage, he then went 40 days and 40 nights. And he came to Mount Sinai, referred to here as Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. He walked 200 miles on that meal. I don't know for you what it'd be like to think today after we leave this service, we're going to go get something to eat, and afterwards we're going to walk to Wilmington in our own strength. But that's essentially the journey that Elijah took. And it wasn't because the food was perfect. It was because God was in the food. And in that, his strength was provided for everywhere that he would go. One meal or two, one, one meal on either side of a nap that allows him to go some 200 miles to Mount Sinai. And it tells us that in the strength of that, Elijah moved forward and did not eat for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights. Boy, we've seen that before, haven't we? You come to that in Scripture and you see it again and again. Many of you know there's times where numbers intentionally, God has used them to mark certain things. Often people know of the number seven, for instance, as a number of completion. You come to the number 40, it is also a number of completion, but it often is completion after testing. And so you've got 40 days and 40 nights that rain is beating down on the ark while Noah and his family are inside. And while the waters continue to rise, there's 40 days and 40 nights of, is the rain going to stop? Is the rain going to stop? Until finally it does. 
Now, they had to be on the ark longer than those 40 days and 40 nights, but after those 40 days and 40 nights, the water started going down. For 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is with God on the mountaintop of Mount Sinai, and as he comes down the mountain after being with God for 40 days and 40 nights, it's then that he sees the children of Israel that are lost in idolatry, and he throws down the tablets of the commandments he just received. Moses barely made it off the mountaintop as well before he was immediately in the valley. We see the children of Israel for 40 years who are wandering in the wilderness until God brings them into the promised land. We see the Lord Jesus who for 40 days and 40 nights, also without food, is tested by the devil in the wilderness. And it's there that the Lord Jesus, in the words of Tim Keller, becomes the true and better Elijah, and the true and better Moses, and the true and better Israel, and the true and better Noah, that Jesus passes the test that none of us could pass. But Elijah, even in the miraculous move of God, is brought to a place on Mount Sinai where there's still some work that has to be done in his heart and his life. The journey is too much for us, but God's more than enough for the journey. You know, Elijah comes to a cave, and it's there that the word of the Lord comes, and this word bookends, in in some sense, his experience, the miracle that we're about to see. The same phrase is going to be on both sides of that. As Elijah finds himself having made it to Mount Sinai, as he is there in a cave, it says in verse 9, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? If somebody were to ask that question of you, how would you receive it? It's usually not a question that's asked in affirmation. It's a question that is asked in, What are you doing? What in the world are you doing? If some of you, somebody was to look at you today and say, what are you doing? (laughs) Would you receive that as, I must be doing something well. It is a gentle rebuke from the mouth of God to Elijah. What are you doing here? Number four, unless we're careful, we'll react wrongly to the gentle rebuke of God. Unless we're careful, we'll react wrongly to the gentle rebuke of God. God comes to Elijah and he says, what are, you, what are you doing here? What Elijah should have said probably was something along the lines of, you're right, I'll get my stuff and I'll head back. But he doesn't do that. He begins to give his speech. Y'all ever have your speech ready? You remember in John chapter 5 where Jesus comes to the man who is at the pool and he's waiting for the stirring of the water so that he can be healed? He's been waiting there for 37 years, I believe it was. And so Jesus comes to him and he asks this question, do you want to be made well? Or the King James says, wilt thou be made whole? And the guy should have said, yes, but he doesn't. He says, well, I want to be made well, but every time I start to be made well, somebody goes down in front of me and the water's stirred. I never can get in there. I just never make it. Elijah begins his speech. What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10, Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. You know, unless we're careful, we'll react wrongly to the gentle rebuke of God. Here are some of the things that we might end up doing, and it's what Elijah does here. Number one, 
we give an inaccurate resume. We give an inaccurate resume. You ever done that before? God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's the nature of the question. Elijah says, well, here's what I've done. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. He begins to list his accomplishments as if God doesn't know what they might be. But these accomplishments are skewed. They're not given with the full dosage of truth. They're done in such a way where Elijah's trying to save face however he can. And he's giving his own inaccurate resume. And on top of that, what he also does is he begins to play the martyr card. You ever played the martyr card? Well, I'm really the only one who's doing what's right. Everybody else is doing what's wrong. I'm the one who's trying to do good, and bad stuff's happening to me when I'm trying to do good. And everybody else is doing bad. Bad stuff doesn't seem to be happening to them. That's the card that Elijah plays. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Well, interestingly enough, in the last chapter, they were bowing down praying to the true God of Israel and forsaken Baal. But that's not what Elijah remembers in the cave. That I, even I only am left. Well, even in God's answer later, we'll see he's not the last one left. You don't have to sell yourself as that, Elijah. It's an inaccurate resume, and he, he plays the martyr card. And do you see the fireworks that God then goes through? Go stand on the mount of the Lord. That's what God says to Elijah. He goes out there, and all of a sudden the wind starts to blow, and rocks begin to break, and then the earth begins to quake, and then fire starts to blaze. And in all of this, it keeps telling us, but the Lord wasn't in that, and it wasn't, he wasn't in that, and he wasn't in that. And then all of a sudden there's a low whisper that comes again. And it's funny because when we read the passage, we see that as Elijah came out to the Mount of the Lord, there must have been a point where he said, I'm getting out of here, and he runs back into the cave again because God calls him back out to hear the same question. And as this still small voice, the King James says, what's given here as a low whisper, as that begins to speak, the same question comes back again. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? The third little sort of, you know, sub point that I'd say is sometimes if we're not careful, we won't take the hint. We won't take the hint. You know, often if we get asked the same question again, that means the first time we gave our answer, it wasn't correct. For you students, when you find yourself in class, if your literature teacher asks you a question, and then all of a sudden you give a long answer that you think is just the smartest answer in the whole world, and right afterwards she looks at you and asks the same question again, don't say the same answer again. When somebody asks you the same question a second time, that means you didn't get it right the first time. But what does Elijah do? He begins to give the same answer, the same way, with the same attitude, all over again. Tony Evans tells a story of a Native American man who was going down the street with a white businessman. They were in the middle of a downtown uh, of a major city. And as they were walking together, the Native American said, wait a second, do you hear that cricket? And the businessman said, I don't hear a cricket. I hear car horns. I hear people walking. I hear the movement and bustling of machines. And I don't know how in the world you think I hear a cricket. And he said, no, listen, listen. The guy listened as hard as he could. Once again, nothing. Finally, the Native American man pointed and he said, you see, the cricket's right over there. Now the guy was looking at him, still couldn't hear him. Walked over, put his ear all the way up. Finally, he was able to hear the cricket. 
He said, how in the world were you able to hear that cricket out here in the midst of everything else? The Native American reached into his pocket and took out some change, and he threw it on the ground, and 20 people stopped walking. And he said, you know, you always hear what you're tuned into. If you're tuned into money, you're going to hear a penny when it's dropped. I'm tuned into nature, and so I hear the cricket. We tend to hear the words that we perhaps are tuned into. I'm sure in our lives, in a number of occasions, we have not heard or we have misheard the still small whisper of God into our hearts and lives. We've chosen other voices, we've heard other things, or we've perhaps jumped to our own defense in such a way that we can't hear the gentle rebuke of God. And so God, after asking this question a second time and getting the same answer a second time, begins to speak graciously to Elijah of the next steps. I know many of you have heard um, Elizabeth Elliot's quote. I know Pastor Brandon has mentioned that before, that oftentimes when we don't know everything to do, what we can do is to do the next thing. And so God provides the next thing for Elijah. Here's where you're going to go. This is going to involve people who are anointed king. This is going to involve justice that's going to be done. It's going to be, involve Elisha who is going to take up your ministry when your time is done. The last thing that I'd say to you this morning is that God's grace propels us forward despite our inadequacy. God doesn't leave Elijah to the cave and the broom tree. He comes and finds him there and says, what are you doing here? You're not done. The same way that Jesus would speak to Peter and he would say, look, feed my sheep. In essence, if you read between the words, you get that sense of, yes, you you did deny me, but do you love me? feed my sheep. You're not done. What are you doing here? God's grace propels us forward despite our own inadequacy. God comes to find Elijah there. God has come through the person and work of Jesus Christ to find us here. And on the day-to-day, there are times where we're under our own broom trees that God comes to us and says, what are you doing? What are you doing here? Will you do the next thing? One of the books I'm reading right now is the book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. And he quotes in there a man named David Siemens, who uh, was a counselor, and summed up his career this way. This is what David said. Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. Number one, The failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And number two, the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. Number one, the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. Number two, the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. Philip Yancey goes on to quote a book called Growing Up Fundamentalist that tells of the reunion of students who had been involved in a missionary academy in Japan. This is what it says, with one or two exceptions, all had left the faith, but come back. One of the students reported, and those of us who came back had one thing in common, we had all discovered grace. The hope of the Christian life is not to never be under a broom tree. The hope of the Christian life 
is that when we find ourselves under broom trees, when we have gone ourselves to those broom trees, that it's God who meets us there, extends His hand, and gently rebukes us with the same words, what are you doing here? You don't have to stay here. You don't have to live here. And this is not your final stop. What are you doing here, Elijah? As I mentioned before, Jesus Christ has been the true and better Elijah, the true and better Moses, the true and better Noah, the true and better Israel, that Jesus has fulfilled what we could not fulfill on our own. And because of Jesus' faithfulness, because of His obedience to come to the earth, to be born of a virgin and to live a sinless life, to die taking our punishment to the cross of Calvary and to defeat death and hell once and for all and rising again. Because of that, you and I will never find ourselves in a place of true and eternal despair when we've trusted in Him. And so as God comes to us and extends His hand, how would He come to you today and ask the same question? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? One of the books I really enjoyed going through this week in preparation for this was a book called The Wisdom and the Folly by a man named Dale Ralph Davis. And he talked about the fact that for Christian interpreters, for many of them who came to this passage, they were very quick to condemn Elijah. You come to 1 Kings 19 and we think, well, good grief, Elijah, what's the problem? You had all this going for you in 1 Kings 18, why'd you turn tail and run? It's real easy to throw stones when you've never been under the broom tree yourself. But as each of us read 1 Kings 19, in some way we'll find ourselves there sooner or later. And Dale Ralph Davis, while he lamented the way that those interpreters had looked at this passage, he also found great hope in what's actually in the Scripture. This is what he said. God extends kindness to Elijah, and this kindness, of course, is vintage Jehovah. And I must confess that in my despair, I would far rather fall into the hands of Elijah's God than into the clutches of his interpreters. Surely 1 Kings 19 teaches you that you needn't fear being a broken servant when you have such a kind and adequate God. Wherever you find yourself under the broom tree today, would you be willing to hear the gentle rebuke of the Father and to go with Him to the next place and the next step? Would you stand for prayer this morning? Jesus Christ has accomplished all that we cannot. And for any of us today, our great hope would not be looking to ourselves, never perhaps ending up under another broom tree, but knowing that Jesus Christ has paid it all for us. Though we're prone to wonder and we feel it and we fear it like we sang just a moment ago, we recognize that God's always at work. He doesn't leave us and He doesn't forsake us. And so today, if you're here and you'd like to trust in the finished work of Jesus, Instead of trusting in yourself, if you've never trusted in Him for salvation, let today be the day that you trust in Him. If you're here and you just need to let go of some things, either at the altar or otherwise, crawl out from under the broom tree and on your knees go before the Lord and just say, God, for me or for somebody else in my life, I want to invite you today. Set that down. Take His hand. If you're here today, even at your seat, however God's working at your heart, in your heart and in your life, Would you hear the gentle rebuke of the Lord? And would you feel and know the grace of Jesus? Father, thank you 
for the encouragement and the gentleness, even in the rebuke, the redirection that we so often need. Father, today may Jesus Christ grow grow greater in our hearts and minds and lives. May we see a greater vision of the God who doesn't let us go, who comes to us where we are and lifts us up and out. We find ourselves in deep water. So Father, today, would you allow us to commune with you and to lean on you in the ways that we should in the coming moments. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.